Stand your ground laws have now been adopted in 33 states across America, a country where 13 million civilians are licensed to carry concealed firearms and where an astonishing 40% of the world's guns can be found. But while many of us see these as relatively recent developments, the path that delivered us here is long and complex, dating to the English castle laws of the 17th century. In her fascinating account of the history of gun ownership and the principle of lethal self-defense, as opposed to the duty to retreat concept enshrined in English common law, Caroline Light reveals how race, gender, and class shape our understanding of the right to kill, making violent self-defense legal for the most privileged among us while serving as a weapon against those less fortunate. Caroline Light is the director of undergraduate studies in Harvard's Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies program. She completed her undergraduate degree in history at Duke University and earned her doctorate in history from the University of Kentucky. Her first book, That Pride of Race and Character, The Roots of Jewish Benevolence in the Jim Crow South, explores how Jewish leaders in the post-Civil War South developed a network of charities to combat voices of anti-Semitism and nativism, building a Southern Jewish benevolent empire and leaving behind a rich legacy. And now please join me in welcoming Caroline Light to the Boston Athenaeum. Thank you. Thanks so much, Danny. I want to thank um, Elsa and Victoria for inviting me, and I want to thank all of you for being here with me tonight. Um, as Danny mentioned, I'm, I'm a, a historian. Um, for past 20 years, I've been studying U.S. history and specifically looking at the perspective of inequality and exclusion. So I'm not studying happy histories. Um, I'm studying what I call intersectional violence. And I'm hoping that over the course of my talk, everybody here will feel more comfortable with that term, intersectionality. Essentially what that means is um, the ways in which intersecting vectors of exclusion, often based on human identities, um, are influential in shaping the rights privileges and protections that uh, of citizenship as they're allocated and also um, as they're denied to certain people. But first, I wanted to, um, especially given that we're in this historic site today, I wanted to read a land acknowledgement before I get started. The land on which I live, uh, work, um, and struggle is in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and it was already settled by Massachusetts and Wampanoag people when English settlers arrived in the 17th century. Native people's labor, technological innovations, and land stewardship remain under-acknowledged despite their vital role in sustaining the lives of those who perpetrated their near extinction. Land in what is now the United States was not peacefully settled, nor was it legally purchased. And the process through which Anglo-European settlers came to occupy New England was characterized by coercion, not by mutual agreement and consent. The legacies of settler colonial brutality remain powerfully with us today, shaping the uneven historical topography that exonerates the perpetrators of violence while placing accountability onto the shoulders of its victims. And this remains true when we think about the logics, the tortured logics of self-defense about which I've been writing. 
So first, I, I want to tell you a little bit of autobiography, is that I grew up mostly in the South, and I grew up around guns. Um, I lived uh, most of my young life in Virginia, in southwestern Virginia primarily, um, and I was raised by parents who hunted and who would shoot guns recreationally. Um, Rifles, usually, uh, were a fairly common sight when I was growing up. I would see them on the back of pickup trucks. Um, I remember my parents taking rifles to, uh, to go hunting or to shoot trap or skeet. So I grew up around guns, and so I want to state that up front because I'm coming from a space that might be somewhat unfamiliar to a lot of folks who have lived most of their lives in New England, my new adoptive home. But things have changed really significantly since my growing up in southwestern Virginia, especially around the 1980s. So when I was small, most gun ownership was specifically focused around recreation and hunting. That was the number one reason why people acquired and kept guns. However, since the 1980s, there has been a seismic shift among gun owners to self-defensive gun purchasing and gun use. So where once we had a bulk of American citizens who acquired and kept guns for recreation, now we have seen a sea change in the motivations for gun ownership in the United States. Um, so I've been really interested in shifts in the reasoning behind being armed and what it means to be an armed citizen. And one of the things I've been trying to track, and which I'll talk to you a little bit about historically, is the phenomenon of the armed citizen, which is a fear-based principle that every person must be armed and ready to defend themselves and their property with lethal violence if necessary. I find that armed citizenship typically takes, takes shape around perceptions of stranger danger and that these ideas of stranger danger tend to be racially coded and also gender coded. So for instance, since the 9-11 terrorist attacks, we've seen a significant shift in fears of so-called terrorists and racial profiling around people who are thought to be terrorists even when they're not. We also see a parallel and sometimes conflated fear of so-called illegal immigration, a fear specifically around our southern border of people who are going to come across the border illegally, take away resources from legitimate Americans, um, and also uh, affect violence and crime in, in, our, in our cherished uh, safe spaces. Um, and we can also see these fears reflected in recent federal policy as well. So they're concretized in the kinds of laws and, and policy that we see. Also, in spite of falling rates of violent crime since roughly the 1990s, we see continued fear of criminals and criminal thugs. And a lot of this language, again, as I mentioned, is uh, irrational, and it's also coded in terms of assumptions about race and gender when we think about different figures of stranger danger that are lurking um, just beyond um, and, and, and against whom we feel this need to be armed citizens.
So this contributes to this idea that every law-abiding citizen necessarily needs to be armed. In the words of uh, the NRA's Wayne LaPierre, and this is a famous phrase, the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. We see this kind of rhetoric echo in the wake of the school shootings that have happened all too frequently in the United States. The solution to the school shooting being put more armed good guys in the schools, right? In spite of statistical evidence showing that armed people in the schools do not manage, in fact, to stave off attacks. So this is the idea, essentially, that uh, the world is populated by bad guys, and if we're not armed, then we're really not good citizens. We're not prepared. In other words, the good citizen is the armed citizen. So Danny mentioned some statistics, uh, specifically that we, we now have more guns than people in the United States. We also are mass producers of guns that then get exported outside of the nation. Um, many people are shocked to hear that Massachusetts is one of the top producers of firearms out in western Massachusetts. Um, we have roughly 40% uh, of the world's guns in circulation here in the United States, even though we only represent 5% of the population. Um, also, the firearms that I'm talking about are, in, are concentrated into relatively few hands. So it's roughly a third or less of the population that is gun owning. But increasingly, people are beginning to assemble their own personal arsenals. So we're starting to see super owners who own multi multiple weapons, sometimes as many as 13 weapons in their own home. Um, so also, there's a shifting social geography, whereas before people might keep weapons in their home, we're starting to witness uh, more and more a civilian carry outside the boundaries of the home. So as of 2014, all 50 states allow for some pathway to civilian concealed carry. The rules vary uh, between different states. Uh, for instance, here in Massachusetts, it's very difficult to obtain a license to carry concealed weapons. You have to demonstrate that you understand how to use firearms. You have to pass some licensing and some firearms safety courses. Um, in other words, it's very difficult in Massachusetts, whereas there, in other states, um, there are actually 12 states now that have something called constitutional or permitless carry, which means that you don't need a permit, nor do you need any training at all to carry a weapon with you into public space. So another manifestation, and for our purposes today, of our nation's unique gun culture and our culture of self-defensive violence involves the passage of stand-your-ground laws in over half of our states, um, starting in Florida in 2005. So these are the stand-your-ground laws. On the face of it, and I'll show you in a little bit what the actual text of the Florida law looks like. On the face of it, these laws provide uh, legal justification and criminal immunity when a person meets force with force when they feel threatened. So it's a law that protects your right to defend yourself wherever you may be when you perceive, when you reasonably perceive a threat. So in spite, though, of the gender and race-neutral language with which these laws are uh, framed, stand your ground laws are interpreted and adjudicated through the lens of our society's racial and gender and class biases. 
So last year, I published the book, Stay in Your Ground, A History of America's Love Affair with Lethal Self-Defense, and I wanted to address the selective way that our nation's seemingly universal commitment to self-defense has been distributed. I started uh, conducting my research in 2012, and this was the year that, in particular, three black teenagers were killed um, by white men or provisionally white men. We can talk about the racial optics later during Q&A. But Trayvon Martin, Renisha McBride, and Jordan Davis uh, were all killed uh, in 2012. Um, all of them died at the hands of, uh, like I said, white men with guns. Um, and each one of their killers claimed to have killed in self-defense. Each one of the people who shot and killed these teenagers claimed that they were in fear for their lives when they shot. Um, so as you probably know, um, Renisha McBride's killer and Jordan Davis's killers are in prison. However, the man who killed Trayvon Martin remains free. In the same year, this is again 2012, and in the same state as Trayvon Martin was shot and killed, this is Florida, again, the first stay in your ground state, um, a woman named Marissa Alexander was convicted of aggravated assault with a deadly weapon by a jury that deliberated for less than 15 minutes. I think that's key. Two years earlier, Ms. Alexander had um, been in the process of retrieving her belongings from the home that she once shared with her uh, estranged spouse, Rico Gray. Um, Rico came home with two of his children from a prior relationship while Marissa was trying to retrieve her belongings and flew into a jealous rage, said, if I can't have you, no one can have you. He refused to let her leave. She shot a warning shot into the wall to get him away from her. He called the police and she was arrested. So she was charged with assault with a deadly weapon. She received the mandatory minimum sentence of 20 years in prison. Then that was extended to 60 because she refused to plead down. She served three years before being released to house arrest in Florida, but this was in response to widespread public outrage. So if not for that outrage, she would probably remain incarcerated today. So these cases, Marissa Alexander's and Trayvon Martin's, bear a lot of striking resemblances. They're both adjudicated in Florida. Both of them were overseen by the same state prosecutor, a white woman named Angela Corey. Both cases involved a firearm allegedly used for self-defense, but there the similarities completely stop. Which person's decision at this point to stand their ground was deemed reasonable and which ones wasn't? Um, in Marissa Alexander's case, Angela Corey um, explained that she was angry rather than fearful. And um, as we'll see in looking at stand your ground laws, being fearful, being reasonably fearful of a perpetrator is what legitimates the use of force under stand your ground. So one of these encounters ended in the death of an unarmed teen whose killer has walked away without serving jail time. And by the way, George Zimmerman continues to harass and threaten people to this day. While the other case, Marissa Alexander, um, ended in a woman's incarceration for defending herself non-lethally from an abusive male partner. So we have by now come to know the justice distorting patterns with which this kind of law um, is adjudicated. 
Um, but I was fascinated in thinking about how these miscarriages of justice um, are embedded in a kind of legal history. So I wanted to study, as a historian, the ways in which self-defensive ideals have circulated in the past. I wanted to know the legal and cultural genealogy behind them that made them possible and perhaps made them inevitable. So literary and legal scholar Carla Holloway um, has written this pocket-sized but very heavy-hitting book called Legal Fictions, which I highly recommend. And in it, she says, the pathological detritus of the past does not necessarily stay in the past. So it's this pathological detritus that I learned is at the core of lethal self-defense in the United States. It shapes the way in which people have historically been able, legally able, to defend themselves and by which people have been excluded from the right to self-defense. When I first started my research, I noted that the proponents of stand-your-ground laws, so those folks who are supportive of stand-your-ground laws as universal self-defense, tend to call them castle laws. And I found that fascinating. So I started my research by studying the castle doctrine. So I'm going to try to take you on a really quick historical intersectional tour of the castle doctrine to look at that doctrine and try to understand how we got to where we are today. So first of all, our laws in the United States are based on English common law doctrine. Um, this essentially held human life in very high regard. So at least under English common law, they were pretty unequivocal on the issue of homicide. This was the worst crime you could commit. To take another person's life was among the most serious crimes. In fact, so high was the law's regard for human life that the right to kill was reserved primarily for the crown. Um, if an individual was attacked or threatened, it was the king and his officers, not the individual citizen, who could serve as the protector or the avenger of a wrong. Um, in particular, under English common law, a person was obligated to retreat to the wall behind one's back if they were threatened. In other words, if somebody approached you in a threatening manner, you weren't supposed to fight back until you first did everything you possibly could to get away. That was and is known as the duty to retreat. Starting in 1604, however, there was an exception to the duty to retreat, and that was known as the Castle Doctrine. A court in 1604 in England found that a person should not be obligated to retreat in the face of danger in his own house. And the 17th century case provided the origins of our expression, a man's house is his castle, which I'm sure folks are familiar with. So the Castle Doctrine, as the main exception to the duty to retreat, um, would translate into what eventually um, became the United States, but it was far from universal. So in other words, while the United States adopted the Castle Doctrine, it was an uneven adaptation of the Castle Doctrine. So for whom was the castle considered a sacred space where you didn't have to retreat? Well, the law applied specifically to property owners, which meant most often white men who were able to protect their home and all dependents therein. 
the legal conditions that excluded most women and non-whites from access to political and economic rights and property ownership guaranteed that the castle would serve as a safe haven primarily for white men and their property. So legal scholar Cheryl Harris um, illuminates how whiteness itself has functioned as an especially valuable form of property in the United States. And she's written a great law review essay called Whiteness as Property, um, which illuminates how this works. She explains white identity conferred tangible, economically valuable benefits. It was jealously guarded as a valuable possession allowed only to those who met a strict standard of proof. Historian Robin D.G. Kelly also explains that the nation's entire political and legal foundations were built on an ideology of settler colonialism, an ideology in which the protection of white property rights was always sacrosanct, and predators and threats to those privileges were almost always imagined as black, brown, and red. So to some, First of all, white property requires lethal protection, and secondly, the sources of the threat are imagined as non-white people. Certainly the homes of native people were not legally protected as castles when Anglo settlers took possession of land that was already settled. And all those people who were considered property, as were enslaved people, could not own property. Enslaved people did not have a legally protected right to defend themselves from violence or threats on their lives. So when we pair this with whiteness, masculinity becomes a significant factor in determining one's access to civil and political rights, as well as material wealth and property. We can think about, for instance, the way in which the concept of citizenship was founded on an understanding of who has access to the rights, the privileges, the protections, and the responsibilities of full citizenship and what would become the United States. So I would say that this distribution of rights and privileges shapes our contemporary appeals to the castle and haunts today's so-called colorblind society. So except under particular circumstances, the castle doctrine applies primarily to men. It excludes women, and here's why. Just one reason why, multiple reasons why, but the English common law doctrine of coverture was essentially the doctrine by which women, once they were married, were then covered under their husband's uh, legal entity. So the doctrine of coverture, another import from European laws, subsumes a married woman's rights under those of her husband. Before she married, she might have limited legal rights, limited access to property, but once she got married, she lost all of those rights to her husband. Any property she owned would belong to her husband. Um, this is a quote from Sir William Blackstone, who uh, was an English commentator on English common law, um, showing that uh, a woman's legal existence is suspended during marriage. Um, and then it talks about how she's consolidated into that of her husband, under whose wing, protection, and cover she performs everything. That invocation of protection here is key. 
Um, as a legal doctrine, coverture has these really deep social implications, presuming that a woman is going to be safe and secure under the protection of her husband. However, ideals of manly protection veil the reality of marital violence and women's legal inability to flee an abusive marriage. Um, for instance, under coverture, uh, women possessed absolutely no authority uh, over their own or their children's lives. Divorce was very rare. When a woman did secure a divorce, usually in a case where a husband was extremely abusive or recalcitrant, um, it was very difficult to secure custody of the children. Um, it was very difficult to continue their financial security. Also, the laws allowed for physical violence to discipline wives. I don't know if folks have heard of the law of chastisement, but essentially that meant that a husband could physically punish his wife under the law. So on the other hand, physical violence against one's husband was strictly forbidden, even in self-defense. Um, if a woman raised her hand to her husband, it was considered treason. It was comparable to a subject attacking his king. A woman who killed her husband, even if it was in self-defense or in defense of her own children, could be put to death. As you can see here, the sentence was to be drawn and burnt alive. Although Blackstone acknowledged that time and the evolution of English civilization would soften these rough edges of chastisement, the law designated a man as master over his wife, just as a king would be sovereign to his subject. So in the United States, as this law of chastisement translates over into the new world, physical chastisement would erode in respectability over the course of the 19th century, but courts would continue to turn a blind eye to violence that would take place in the so-called private space of the castle. By the 20th century, legalized chastisement was pretty much a thing of the past. However, um, invocations of privacy would create a space in which the sanctity of a man's castle would transcend uh, the right to safety of women and children. The only exception to the masculine monopoly on violence existed when a white woman fought back against the threat of sexual violence from a stranger who was not her husband. In English law, homicide could be justified quote, when committed in defense of chastity, either of oneself or relations, and a woman killing one who attempts to ravish her may be justified, and so too the husband or father may justify killing a man who attempts a rape upon his wife or daughter, end quote. The necessary defense of a woman's sexual virtue evinced the extreme nature of the circumstances under which this particular kind of homicide could be justified. Just as a woman could defend herself, uh, with lethal violence, if she, if she was threatened by a rapist, so might a man whose wife or daughter was thus threatened use violence in defense of his castle and the inhabitants therein. A woman's right to defend herself did not extend to marital rape, as the concept did not exist under English common law. In the 17th century, um, English jurist Lord Matthew Hale wrote that when a woman married, she gave herself to her husband, thereby consenting to sex until the marriage ended. 
Um, Hale writes, the husband cannot be guilty of a rape committed by himself upon his lawful wife for by their mutual matrimonial consent, a contract with wife hath given herself in kind to her husband, which she cannot retract. So there's a long residue to these kinds of laws. Um, under coverture, a woman was essentially the property of her husband. She could not, and there was no concept of marital rape. Interesting to note that marital rape was not outlawed in this nation until the 1990s on a state-by-state -state basis. Prior to that moment, the idea of marital rape really wasn't uh, understood. It wasn't really publicly acknowledged that such a thing could happen. So part of my point here is that a lot of these legal doctrines have a very long tail. Um, so a husband had a right to sue anybody whose actions, uh, whether it was an infliction of injury, um, sexual violence, murder, whatever, harmed his wife's ability to perform her household duties or to contribute honorably to his lineage. Um, instead of a crime against a person, rape was considered a violation of a man's property. Uh, since a sexually violated woman was considered damaged goods, a rapist was liable to the victim's father if she was unmarried um, and to the victim's husband if she was married. Under this logic, a woman could use lethal force, um, lethal self-defense only if she was faced by a stranger trying to rape her and only if she was white. The protections of the Castle Doctrine and self-defense of chastity excluded African Americans unless they were free property owners living in non-slave states. And the doctrine of coverture existed harmoniously, and I would even say codependently, uh, with, uh, with legalized slavery and racial capitalism. Like coverture, slavery rested on the notion of white masculine supremacy in the form of unconditional control over other human beings, and slaves lived at the mercy of their master's power. The law allowed masters liberal discretion uh, when it came to disciplining their slaves, and although some laws prohibited the outright killing of slaves, murderous or abusive masters received scant discipline. The main thing that prevented a slave owner from such extreme measures as murdering his own slave was his monetary interest in the slave as a valuable commodity and producer of labor. So together, this codependency of slavery and coverture and settler colonialism are going to weigh most heavily on non-white women. Particularly, enslaved women had no power to defend themselves under the right of self-defense of chastity because as property, enslaved women had no claims to property. And unlike white women who were expected to propagate a racially pure lineage in the United States, enslaved women's chastity was considered without value. In fact, enslaved women's sexual exploitation at the hands of white owners helped serve economic foundations of slavery even long after the slave trade was outlawed. There's a legal doctrine that was initiated in the United States um, 
uh, or actually in the colonies that would become the United States in the 1600s called pardus, sequitur, ventrum, offspring follows belly. Essentially, this was the doctrine by which all children born to enslaved women, regardless of their color, regardless of their paternity, would themselves be slaves. This is how the United States was able to propagate slavery long past uh, the time when the slave trade was outlawed. Not to say slave trade necessarily ended with the criminalization of the slave trade. So um, essentially, all of the, the criminalization of slavery didn't mean it ended, um, and enslaved women's bodies became the means by which uh, uh, workforce um, repopulation could continue under slavery. Black women's continued sexual exploitation would serve a white supremacist economy that was continued to be based on unfree labor and pervasive sexual violence, and their exclusion from the principles of self-defense would enjoy a lasting legacy. So as legal systems that were foundational to our, our nation's social order, coverture, slavery, settler colonialism altogether helped concentrate the nation's most valuable property into very few hands. I know none of this is very surprising to us, but it's because it obviously a lot of it was instantiated very long ago, but um, what I often find gets lost in conversations about structural violence or intersectional violence is the simultaneity of the way these discourses and these, these legal foundations worked together. Um, we know that obviously, eventually, married women over the course of the 19th century in particular would receive their own property rights. Um, slavery was outlawed within around the same time frame. Um, native people, formerly enslaved people, and women of all races and ethnicities would, or would eventually receive formal citizenship rights for which they all struggled mightily. And those formerly excluded from the protection of the castle doctrine would eventually receive it, at least on paper. So now, in theory, we all enjoy equal access to the right to protect ourselves from attack as long as we reasonably perceive a threat to our lives, right? But not really. So I want to take a look, I want to jump forward and take a look at our our stand-your-ground laws. So I want to mention, first of all, they're, they're in over half of the states now. We do not have a stand-your-ground law in Massachusetts. Um, the law, the first one was passed in 2005 in Florida. This is the text of the first stand-your-ground law. Um, it was duplicated almost word-for-word word in several other states directly following Florida's passage. Um, Georgia, for instance, passed it. Virginia, um, Kentucky, uh, so there's, there are multiple states that have a very strong stand-your-ground law, and essentially what stand-your-ground laws do is they expand the parameters of the castle. And this is where I discovered the fascinating principle of how the castle doctrine has circulated and become in many ways distorted or perhaps stretched is a better word for it in the contemporary United States, where once the castle doctrine was based on your right to, uh, to not have to retreat from danger in your own home or castle, stay in your ground laws, at least Florida's, says that you're allowed to use lethal violence wherever you may legally be. So that could be wherever you happen to be. You could be in a public street, you could be in a shopping mall. Um, 
It's also framed around universal appeals to colorblindness. It's gender neutral. It's made to seem like everybody has equal access um, to to uh, defend themselves with lethal violence um, if they see fit. I want to think about the way this law also circulates against the backdrop of the um, extreme uh, expansion of concealed carry among civilians. When we think about guns in circulation in public spaces that were once gun-free spaces, um, there's a collision course here between these newly expanded understandings of the so-called castle doctrine, where your castle follows you out into public space, essentially, and the idea that multiple people could be carrying lethal weapons along with them. Um, often, one of the outcomes of the law is that encounters like road rage encounters can turn more lethal because more people are armed and also aware of the Castle Doctrine's um, exceptions against the duty to retreat wherever a person may legally be. Um, as you probably know, um, African Americans in the United States are 10 times more likely to die of gun violence than are white people. Recent research shows that whites who kill African Americans in stand-your-ground states are over 11 times more likely to escape criminal prosecution um, than African Americans who kill whites. Um, while many more men are victims of gun violence, women are especially at risk from firearms in their own castles. Most women, contrary to the popular wisdom around stranger danger, are killed by their own intimate partners or exes. Um, we've also witnessed a significant uh, uptick in homicides in states that have stand-your-ground laws. So it's over 30% increase in homicides in Florida since the passage of the first stand-your-ground law in 2005. So when I wrote, wrote this book, um, when it came out a year ago, I naively thought that I was writing a history book. I did. I believe that I was writing a book that um, would be history, that stand your ground laws would be history. By the time my book came out, I expected that our nation would have taken note of this colossal breach of injustice that stand your ground laws constitute and amplify. It isn't that they invent the injustice, it's that they amplify it. Um, I thought they would have been repealed, but instead the opposite is true. In just the months after my book came out, uh, in Florida, the Stand Your Ground law um, was redesigned to shift the burden of proof um, from the defense to the prosecution. Essentially, the prosecution in a Stand Your Ground case has to prove uh, that um, there is no reasonable grounds for, uh, for self-defense. In other words, the prosecution has to prove that the defendant was not in fear for his or her life in the moment that they possibly shot and killed or took another life um, in self-defense. Um, I want to mention a couple of contemporary examples of what we might observe as the contemporary terrain of Stand Your Ground. I recently spent some time in Florida with Black Lives Matter, Broward County, um, effort to repeal Stand Your Ground. Um, these are two fairly recent cases in which police officers have invoked Stand Your Ground. Now, Stand Your Ground was originally designed for civilians to defend themselves when they perceive a reasonable threat. 
However, um, in these two cases, Jermaine McBean, who was killed in 2013, and Corey Jones, who was killed um, in the fall of 2015, they were police officers who used Stay in Your Ground to amplify their exception, exception from uh, criminal or to amplify their criminal immunity in cases where they claim to have shot and killed in self-defense. Um, in the case of Corey Jones, just last week, a judge in Florida denied a pretrial hearing for Stand Your Ground for Raja Newman, who was the plainclothes police officer who shot and killed Corey Jones. However, um, when Newman Raja's case, his uh, homicide case, goes to trial, he can still invoke Stand Your Ground. Um, and I think we know by now that police, especially when they're white or seemingly white um, police officers who take the lives of black and brown individuals, they enjoy quite a bit of the benefit of the doubt when they're in a criminal court um, claiming that they were uh, in fear for their lives. So certainly those are two cases where we're seeing police invoke stand your ground. I think we can expect to see more of that beyond um, Florida. Another thing I wanted to bring up in terms of our contemporary universe of self-defense is that a lot of the proponents of staying your ground laws and of lethal self-defense and of gun rights more generally argue that guns and self-defense laws are absolutely vital for women to protect themselves, whether it's from rapists or home invaders or attackers or whatever. Um, statistically speaking, women's greatest threat are their own intimate partners and exes, as I mentioned before. So um, fairly recently, and these cases happened within a few weeks of each other in April of 2016, Two women um, in the state of Kentucky, as I mentioned before, a strong stand-your-ground state, shot and killed um, their, uh, their partners. Um, in each of these cases, the women had um, court orders to protect them from violent spouses or boyfriends. In both cases, they had weapons with them to protect them from angry and violent spouses. They had witnesses who testified to past abuse. And in both of these cases, and I, I believe both of these women don't have a lot of money, so there's a class component to this as well. If you have money to hire a powerful defense attorney, you have a better chance of, of finding some immunity in the law. But both Pamela Smith and Melissa Roberts lacked the means uh, to employ um, defense attorneys who could help them, and both um, were sent to prison. Um, I believe they are still trying to to appeal, um, but again, they provide just a couple of examples among many of the ways in which women invoking self-defense still um, are tethered to old, uh, historically entrenched uh, gendered assumptions around whose castle it actually is in each of these cases. And, and another case I, I want to bring up, one that I, I do talk about in my book, is I, I've heard many folks argue that um, strong self-defense laws, uh, that, that guns are going to be necessary for members of minoritized communities, for gender nonconforming folk, for LGBTQ folk, especially LGBT or Q people of color. And yet time and time again, we are shown how criminal 
justice does not protect the right of minoritized identities to defend themselves when they are attacked. Um, Kai Peterson, um, very young African-American trans man in the state of Georgia, again, Georgia being a very strong stand-your-ground state, shot and killed his rapist. Um, he was convicted of involuntary manslaughter. He remains in a women's prison in Georgia today in spite of having had a positive rape kit, in spite of having had... Um, uh, uh, witnesses state that they saw him being dragged away by his rapist. Um, so in spite of what proponents say about guns, uh, the good guy with the gun uh, is the thing that will stop the bad guy with the gun, um, Kai Peterson might be an example of the good guy with a gun who purchased his gun specifically because he had been targeted before. Um, and yet he is incarcerated for having stood his ground in a state where, theoretically, standing your ground against a reasonable threat should be legal. So, as I mentioned before, these cases barely scratch the surface. Um, of, of the magnitude of the human costs of the criminal injustice represented in the way in which our nation um, adjudicates uh, justifiable self-defense or justifiable homicide. And I bring them up so that we can think more critically and question the universality of this so-called universal right to self-defense. And hopefully they help us think more carefully about the ways in which we continue to invoke self-defensive violence as a universal right, the way in which invocations of self-defense will circulate every time there's another mass shooting, for instance, um, when really self-defensive violence has always been uh, a privilege of the few at the expense of the safety for the many. So I want to end with a quote from Ava DuVernay. Um, if you don't know Ava DuVernay's work, she, among many other things, produced an excellent documentary called The 13th. It's on Netflix. You can watch it. In fact, if you haven't seen it, please watch it. Um, it's about how the 13th Amendment, which criminalized slavery, maintained a caveat for criminalization and incarceration, which has led to the situation of racialized hyperincarceration we have today. Anyway, Ava DuVernay was here in town just a week ago giving a speech at Harvard's graduation, and I want to leave you with her words of wisdom. History is our guide and our leash we can decide which. We, will we be informed by the past and shift and recalibrate and mature and blossom? Or will we simply repeat and retreat to what has already occurred? We must declare which. Thank you very much.